From the conflict with Iran to a great book on apologetics, we've got you covered today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. That is how President Trump started his press conference, his message to the world today. After that, it was good morning, welcome, but it started with that message. We'll talk about it in a moment. Welcome to the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. We're going to cover two major things today. First, The conflict with Iran, just want to weigh in with some thoughts on that. And then second, bottom half of the hour, we're going to bring on leading apologist and author Greg Kokel to talk about the 10th anniversary edition of his book called Tactics, an important book. It'll be an important interview. Might be able to take your calls for Greg Kokel as well. But the number, as always, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-34-TRUTH. 348-7884. And, excuse me, before I give you my perspective on things, I want to open up the phones for you to call in and share your perspective. How do you feel about how President Trump has handled the recent conflict with Iran? Growing, excuse me, growing Iranian aggression and then the attack on our embassy in Iraq by Iranian dissidents, then the, the taking out of General Soleimani, then Iran's response, then the, uh, the president's press conference. Overall, how do you feel this has been handled? 866-348-784. Okay, before we go any further, um, uh, recently with a lot of sickness and stuff going around and my constant travel in different time zones and weather zones and things like that, you're on planes filled with people who are sick. Uh, every so often, I'll just get minor cold symptoms. My immune system is 10 times stronger than it used to be. My overall health, massively better than it's ever been in the last five and a half years, by God's grace. But I just developed a slight cough. A doctor friend of mine said, hey, drink some throat coat organic tea before and during the show, and it'll help a lot. So I started doing that just a couple days ago. And lo and behold, it really worked. Well, right before we started today, I was just trying to drink some, and I don't know, maybe it's a little hot or whatever, so I think that contributed to slight coffee, but we're good. All is good. 866-348-7884. Okay. What do we make of the president's handling of the recent conflict with Iraq and Iran in particular within Iraq? Was this irresponsibility by the president? Was this the very thing we feared that the man is going to do something crazy? He's going to take somebody out. He's going to start a world war. He's going to escalate hostilities. He's going to destabilize the Middle East. He's a madman in the White House and you can't trust him. Is that what happened? One scenario, and many people hold to it passionately. Their their worst fears starting to be realized. Congress not properly consulted. This is just a reckless act by a rogue president. That's one side. 
Another side, we took out the world's leading terrorist. We faced down the largest state sponsor of terrorism. We faced down the bully, and the bully is backing down, and the world is a better place. Thank God for President Trump. Two very different perspectives. What do we make of it? What's a right assessment? What can we learn from this? First, let's listen to President Trump today from this message to the world, from this press conference. He didn't take questions, just delivered his message and left. Let's hear what he had to say. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. All right. Now, there was great concern. Reports last night. Oh, no. Here it is. The war is on. Iran is bombing our troops. How many are going to die? What's going to happen in the Middle East? What about Iraqi casualties and things like that? And then as the dust begins to clear, the report, no casualties. Now, Iran used sophisticated ballistic missiles. Why were there no casualties? Was it the providence of God? Was it our good defense system and we were adequately pre-warned? Or was it that Iran put on a show, a display, so that they can save face in the eyes of their people and nation and then report whatever they want to their own people, whereas in reality, intentionally, they missed? It is being widely reported today, major headlines, major news networks reporting that Iran intentionally missed for fear of escalating things with the United States. Remember, they are under crippling sanctions right now. Remember, there is a growing surge, a growing movement in Iran to overthrow the government and to bring down the radical Islamic clerical leadership of the nation. Many, many are not happy. And at the same time, there is a groundswell underground of the gospel growing of many Iranian Muslims coming to faith in Jesus. That, too, will ultimately have a destabilizing effect on the Islamic regime. So could this be, in fact a calculated major victory by the president. Let's, let's hear more of what he had to say. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. Now, there's no question that from the viewpoint of conservative Americans and those who love Israel, that under the Obama administration, we made a terrible deal with Iran. The nuclear deal was basically going to give them a path to nuclear warheads in the future. And and Israel was terrified of that and mortified over it. And then in addition, monies that we had held back, what, $150 billion, how much was it, was then given to Iran, which has largely helped to underwrite their acts of terrorism. They even said with the money, we're going back to what we have been doing. 
So you're talking about destabilizing Syria and destabilizing in Iraq and, and constantly threatening Israel. So, so look, radical Islam is a bad thing. The leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini put the country in a, in a bad way. And the Shah of Iran was no saint himself. We understand that. And in a worldly, Iran was no saintly country either. And I understand we're, we're dealing with countries, America, every country is a mixed entity, all right? But Khomeini helped launch the worldwide radical Islamic revolution. He's one of the key major players in recent decades involved. on we resume so yeah president trump was right to say as much as it's a slap at the last administration we as americans as a nation president obama this was one of the worst things he did sad to say there are many things president trump has said and done i'm critical of this was something president obama did i'm very critical of pierce morgan has an article in daily mail And it's quite an extraordinary article bashing liberals and their responses to Trump taking out this terrorist. Listen to some of what he says. He says, Soleimani was the world's most dangerous terrorist. He said, as such, he was no different ideologically from other terror leaders like Al-Qaeda, Chief Osama bin Laden, ISIS commander Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And he says... Even though our forces took out all these, and of course, Baghdadi killed himself, he said, yet unlike bin Laden and Baghdadi, Soleimani's death has been met with howls of protest from the world's liberals. Why? Because the hatred of Trump trumps everything for some of them. He said, when Obama ordered the execution of bin Laden, liberals cheered him around the world. But Trump derangement syndrome dictates there must be a very different response when the current president kills a terror leader. You say, yeah, but, but. Trump was not condemned for taking out al-Baghdadi, probably ISIS being so despicable and so evil and Baghdadi taking his own life. The liberals couldn't attack him for that. But now after the impeachment hearings, it's like the radical left has gotten even further to the left. So now they want to attack Trump for war crimes and atrocities and terrorist acts for taking out a terrorist. Change the world. Change the world. 
It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So Pierce Morgan is on to something. Rush Limbaugh said the same thing. Interesting that you've got Pierce Morgan on the left and Rush Limbaugh on the right saying the same thing. Namely, that hatred for Trump on those on the left, especially the radical left, has so blinded them that rather than appreciating that a mass terrorist was taken out and a terrorist regime was successfully faced down, instead they want to condemn Trump for war crimes, for atrocities, want to add this to the impeachment articles. In fact, I saw a report on the New Republic saying this. Let me just see if I can find it. Yeah, Trump's next impeachable offense is nigh. Congress may have no other choice but to redeploy the ultimate check against a rogue president bent on committing atrocities. Well, because he took out an arch terrorist. Now, here's the other thing. From everything we know, he did not simply make a cavalier decision. David French, an attorney and a strong never-Trumper, David French has said that he had the legal right to do what he did without getting permission from Congress first. This is David French, a very strong never-Trumper. He pointed out that Trump acted within right bounds here. Not only so, but you have a council of people standing together, and it appears from reports that it was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo who was strongest in saying, we have an opportunity to take this man out. We should take him out. So so much for the idea that Trump just decides, I'm going to press it. But, oh, he may send out tweets that are definitely his own tweets. And, and a lot of people wish he wouldn't, me being one of them, all right, one of many. But in point of fact, it seems that this decision was a calculated decision, and they must have thought through what Iran will and won't do. And while we need to remain prayerful and vigilant because Iran is, is capable of carrying out all kinds of other terror attacks, those things remain possible. It seems right now there's a posturing and a stepping back. And in the president's speech, he also offered an olive branch. Now, was that to the people as a whole, for the Iranian people, if they're able to watch this, to say, hey, let's have peace and let's have your nation prosper. Why should you be a pariah nation? Why should you be an isolated nation? Why should you be the world's greatest state sponsor of terror? Why not come to the table of the nations and have peace and prosperity? Was he saying that for those that want to overthrow the current regime? Or was that a genuine offer to the regime there saying, hey, you do not have to be who you are you can be Islamic and all of that, but you don't have to be terrorists. Let's make an agreement together. We shall see. But a few other things that Pierce Morgan pointed out. So Colin Kaepernick obviously is going to see things through the eyes of, of race. And, and Kaepernick says this. This is after taking out of an arch terrorist. There's nothing new about American terrorist attacks against black and brown people for the expansion of American imperialism. That's how he read this, all right? Remarkably. So Morgan responded, Kaepernick either doesn't know or choose, chose to ignore that for many years, Iran has been committing terror attacks on black and brown people for the expansion of its own imperialist agenda in the Middle East. All right, friends. I want to be totally candid with you. And when I heard about the taking out of this Iranian general, I felt very confident 
when our embassy was attacked, that the president was going to respond, and he was going to do so in a decisive way. When I heard that he took this man out, I hoped that he had consulted with Israel, that he, had, that he had really thought this through, that he knew what the repercussions could be, and that it was a good, calculated move, and one that would send a message to Iran and the world. Now, I was hopeful, but I obviously wasn't sure who could know. And I did have concerns that this could trigger something very serious. I never thought for a moment, personally, that this was his way of distracting from the impeachment trials because he's been tweeting about them day and night and saying, let's have a trial. I want an open trial. I want witnesses. I want to get everything out. So I I didn't see him doing that, nor did I think he was that cavalier to do something like that. And from what I can tell, having listened to some of his speeches about having to speak to, to the widows and to the parents uh, as, as coffins of their loved ones come back and how he, he hates, as every president would hate doing that, that he really does not want to escalate war and see our troops getting killed overseas, from what I could tell. But the most revealing thing to me as this plays out is the responses of those on the radical left, the responses of those rather than standing with the president and saying, we hope this is a good move, but we're glad this arch-terrorist was taken out. Instead, they paint a picture as if Trump is the arch-terrorist. That, to me, is the most telling thing of all. 866-34-TRUTH, the number to call. So I just posted this on Twitter, literally one minute, no, 30 seconds before the show started today. Had everything in order everything we wanted to cover, our clips before us. And I thought, okay, I got time to post this right before we go live. And I asked this question. uh, So let's just see here. D, guess he fooled you again about the impeachment, Doc. Yeah, D, I guess I got fooled again. I guess I'm so naive and so dumb and so stupid that the president hoodwinked me again. Glad that he didn't hoodwink you. Yeah, a little sarcasm there, but posted open comment. It could be subject to a friendly, sarcastic response. Hey, the poll I posted asked this. Overall, do you approve of Trump's handling of the recent conflict with Iran? So it's a broad question, the recent conflict in these recent days, right? Um, Do you approve of Trump's handling of the recent conflict with Iran? And please indicate if you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump in your answer. So thus far... Interestingly, uh, those that say they're pro-Trump, that is uh, 84.8% approve, as, as I'm looking at it right now, just the first 158 votes, because I just posted this minutes ago. All right, so uh, just shifting. Over 80%. So at this point, it is about 27 to 1. Those who are pro-Trump approve versus disapprove, 82% to 3%. Among those who are anti-Trump, that's how I put it. It was real stark. You're either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. I know many don't put themselves in that place, but that's, that's how I put it on the poll to make it as stark as possible. Where are you going to put your name? Among those who are anti-Trump, so that's about 15% of the vote. So about 85% of my Twitter followers identifying as pro-Trump, 15% as anti-Trump. No surprise with that, right? Interestingly, Among them, it's a little bit in the majority that they approve. Interesting, isn't it? 
So even among my anti-Trump Twitter followers, and again, this is just an unscientific poll to ask a question. It's interesting that the response is what it is. Now, what's really going to be telling is a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. I want to throw out something else that strikes me as hypocritical. There is instant concern. We took out Soleimani. What's the payback going to be? What are the repercussions going to be? What's going to happen to our troops? What's going to happen in the Middle East? What's going to happen to Americans abroad? What's going to happen to Americans at home? To me, all valid concerns, absolutely valid, absolutely valid concerns, valid questions. Who knows what Iran will do? Very valid questions. I don't dispute them in the least, and they're questions we're going to have to keep looking at in the months ahead to see what unfolds. But here's what I find hypocritical. We take out al-Baghdadi, about to capture him or kill him. He takes his own life, right? And you know that there's going to be some repercussion. Now, immediately, we took out his next guy. That happened immediately after. So suddenly, you may not be so quick to succeed him. Uh, well, okay, maybe uh, somebody else for the job, all right? These are people with families. These are individuals. They're, not all of them are ready to be martyred tomorrow, okay? But you know there are going to be repercussions. So a couple of weeks ago, ISIS sympathizers in Nigeria behead 11 Christian hostages and apparently one Muslim hostage that killed him without beheading him. 11 Christians they behead and they say, we did this in retaliation for the killing of al-Baghdadi. Did you hear a peep around the world? Did you hear a peep of, well, we shouldn't have taken him out? Did you hear anybody talking about that? Could it be because there's black Christians in Nigeria, I mean, all the way over there and they're, and they're African and, and they're Christian. Could it be that that was the issue? And as hundreds, even thousands of Nigerian Christians are slaughtered by radical Muslims, well, it's really not our concern. Isn't there something hypocritical about all that? Just wanted to throw that out to you. So to me, we have the best case scenario. If, if, if things stay as is, we have the best case scenario so far for America saying, you don't mess with us. A, B, we just dealt a blow to your terrorist activities and sent a message to the rest of the world. And C, we are extending an olive branch to the people of Iran, to the government of Iran. Let's sit down together at the table of nations. Put down your terrorism. You can have prosperity in your country. And look, bottom line, we're not talking about everybody having a, a luxury vehicle and living in a mansion. We're talking about people surviving. We're talking about people having a decent quality of life. We're talking about people not having to wonder how the sanctions are going to affect their future. So we shall see what happens. And then the greatest scenario of all would be such a massive revival in Iran that it becomes known as a Christian nation. Wouldn't that be amazing? Okay, we come back. We go straight over to Greg Kokel to talk about his important book, Tactics. Thrilled to see the 10th anniversary edition that has just been released. If you have a question for Greg, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. We'll be right back. Change the world. Change the world. 
It's time now for the Mefford Minute with Janet Mefford. Plan. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. The first half of the broadcast, we talked about Iran, the president's handling of the situation, reactions to it. Now, we want to focus on apologetics, and I'm thrilled to have with me on the line of fire Greg Kokel. He's one of the nation's leading apologists, and his book, Tactics, was so popular and so widely used that he has now put out an expanded, revised, updated 10th anniversary edition. Now, now, now listen, Greg has been blessed to minister to a lot of people and help a lot of people. But when you've got Lee Strobel writing the forward to your book, and then you've got people like my good friend, apologist Frank Turek saying, I wish I knew these tactics 20 years ago. And, and Gary Habermas, the, our greatest scholar on the resurrection, saying tactics is not only a required read, but simply a delightfully entertaining resource. Just try to put it down. This tells you, friends, that if you haven't read tactics yet, you want to get the book. So without further ado, Greg, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Michael. Those are very kind words, and it's really nice to chat with you again. Thanks. Well, my, my joy. All right. Listen, you've done a lot of writing. You've done a lot of ministry. What is it about tactics uniquely that seems to have hit home and helped so many people? Yeah, well, there's two things that come to mind immediately, and uh, you and I have both been to a lot of apologetics conferences where really smart people give a lot of great information. We've got a very deep bench, as you know. Uh, But the problem is that it's difficult for the rank and file to get that information into play into a conversation, even if they know it, even if they learn it. There's a missing bridge from the content to the conversation or, say, from the scholarship to the relationship. And what the tactical game plan provides for that person is it it provides for them that necessary bridge, that way of getting into conversations with the information you've learned without sounding weird and without, you know, without causing trouble. So your engagement looks more like um, diplomacy than D-Day. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is I really emphasize in the book, the concept of gardening versus harvesting. Mm. Gardening versus harvesting, or sowing versus reaping, is the way Jesus put it in uh, John chapter 4. You know, a lot of our evangelism is really geared for harvesting. We bring on a, a tract or a booklet, we go through four steps, and we press uh, for a decision. We try to close the deal. Nowadays, there's a lot more gardening that needs to be done before the harvest is going to be ready. And you know that because of the way the culture is and the challenges that people are facing. And what the tactics book uh, provides is a very practical, very easy, and very safe way to garden, to make a little difference here and a little difference there to help somebody move closer towards the harvest and not worrying about the harvest in that particular conversation. Those two things, I think, uh, Michael, have really excited people, which is why this book has done so well the last 10 years. And this new, uh, new version, the 10th anniversary edition that's just come out, completely revised and expanded, 40% new material, 
is, uh, is, is doing so well now. It's really being well-received. I'm very excited about it. All right, we, we've mentioned a few times the number 10, 10 years. Have things shifted in the culture, even in these last 10 years or in our Christian witness, when you talk about these days, how we have to share our faith or share our cultural convictions? Has there been a shift in the last 10 years? Yeah, there's been a big shift uh, because, um, and it actually started long, long, let me say 30 years ago, but in right. the last 10 years, a couple of things have happened. One, people have just gotten more hostile to Christianity. And it doesn't mean that every person you run into is going to be nasty and mean to you, but it does mean that the people who are the gatekeepers of society, uh, the, the, the media and the, the film industry and the universities especially, um, the, the intellectual hostility towards Christianity is so aggressive, so much more than it ever was before. And it's not justified, because in the last 10 years, we've, we've learned more things to, as, uh, as uh, 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 McDowell, uh, not Sean, but uh, Josh McDowell said, there's an avalanche, there's a tsunami of evidence in favor of Christianity. Even so... Um, in these gatekeeper communities, there has been a lot more pushback, the new atheists and all those that follow them. And so this, I think, it makes it a, a lot more tricky atmosphere for Christians. It, it frightens them a little bit, and I understand that. And so they're willing, they, they, they just back off more and more. And, or they become more bellicose and more, more they're fighting more. And, and neither of those is the answer. Instead, the answer is to give, give an answer with gentleness and reverence. And how do you do that? That's what the tactics book is all about. All right, so let's let's think about a couple of wrong approaches and then I want to I want to talk about some of your your Colombo tactics in terms of of taking the driver's seat, but there are the two extremes. The one would be you just withdraw. You don't want to offend, you don't want to be controversial, so you kind of withdraw. Right. And then the other is is just we're going to we get aggressive and so on. So give me an example. Um, I'm your next door neighbor. We, we meet, we start talking. It's our first or second conversation. Give me a, a, a wrong example, but something that Christians commonly fall into. Well, I, I had one yesterday, actually, on my own radio show. A Christian called in, an eighth grader, actually, but quite articulate, engaging his students, fellow students, on the issue of homosexuality, which you know and you've written extensively about. Very volatile issue right now. And he said, he asked me how he can engage his friends on the issue, you know, and make the case. Um, and uh, what he'd been doing is just quoting the Bible. Well, the Bible says. Now, I think the Bible is an authority, uh, but the, that doesn't, but the general culture doesn't. And so if all we do is say the Bible says, and then quote some verse, this is not going to be compelling. Um, and so here's what I suggested was a tactic that I have in the book. It's a new tactic I've, I've added, and it's called, um, I call it, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, all right? That's the name of the tactic. In other words, what you do is you bring Jesus on your side. So people who don't respect the Bible, broadly put, do respect Jesus, mm. because they think he's a pretty cool guy, and he had something to say, he's pretty bright, he's spiritual, he loved people, he was gracious, all those things that people normally bring up. And this is why they want to get Jesus on their side. They want to say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, for example, and they think that this, this is a meaningful rebuttal to the Christian view. So what I encourage the eighth grader to say, is, ask him, he says, um, why, why, would you, 
why would you cite Jesus? Well, because Jesus knows a thing or two. We respect Jesus. When you see that somebody else respects Jesus, then I think it's good to go to someplace. Well, here's what Jesus said about marriage, and go to Matthew 19. Now, you're going to a verse, of course, in the Bible, but you're going to the statement of Jesus, and Jesus is the person that the other person respects. So Jesus said, and I'll just sum up what he said in Matthew 19, that God's plan for marriage is one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. So how do you get same-sex marriage out of that? Now notice I just ended with a question. How do you get same-sex marriage out of that? Or how do you get Jesus approving of homosexuality out of that? That's the question that I'm going to toss back to the non-Christian, and now it's their turn to answer. Now who are they fighting? They can't fight me because I didn't make a statement. I let Jesus make the statement, and when they disagree, now they are disagreeing with Jesus. Now this isn't a foolproof method, of course, but I think the listeners can see the tactical difference between citing Jesus, who they say they respect, and asking a question, and simply saying, well, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. That's an example of using a tactical approach on a tough question. Yeah, and, you know, uh, so much going through my mind as you're saying this. When I had Professor Daryl Bach on the air with me one time, he mentioned, you know, years ago we could say it's true because it's in the Bible. Today we have to say to the world it's in the Bible because it's true. And, and the same way, when you say the Bible says, it can sound impersonal. Look, you and I believe in the power of the gospel, the power of Scripture, quoting the Bible and all of that, and we, we hide behind the Scriptures, but it can be done in an impersonal way. Yeah. Or you can get people, again, simple tactic. That's the whole beauty of, of the book, tactics. Uh, you could get the same result, in fact, even better, because if I just quote it at you, you're immediately going to be responding and so on. If I say, well, let's look at this. What do you think? Now we're going on a little journey together. We're learning together. And like you said, they like Jesus. I remember as an unsaved Jewish hippie drug user, we thought Jesus was pretty cool. Just Christian religion was bad. (laughs) So if you've got that door, if it's open, right? Yeah. What is he saying? And then ask the question, so is one of the big tactics to get the person you're talking to actually stop and think? Of course. I mean, that, just, that, that to me is, is the most central thing. If you think of conversations that uh, many Christians have, and we've had with the non, non-believers, there's a series of slogans that are thrown out. They have these statements, these sloganistic statements, who are you to say, and, uh, for example, or that's just your opinion, or, you know, I can't trust the Bible, all these odds and ends that people toss out. But they have not really thought through these things. Oh, the Bible's been changed. Really? When was it changed? How much was changed? What parts were changed? Are any things reliable? These are other questions that could be asked to clarify. When you ask questions like that, of these sloganistic things that people toss out, it stops the other person in their tracks because they have never thought about those things. Mm. They're just repeating slogans. And so it's entirely fair for us to engage in friendly conversations with appropriate questions that go directly to the issue that's been raised to get the other person thinking carefully about those issues. And, you know, we do it in every other area of life. We try to employ wise tactics, but somehow... When it comes to sharing the gospel, the standing for cultural convictions, we, we think we're being in the flesh or compromising. Boy, we need some rethinking. By the way, Greg, I'm looking at a comment in our Facebook feed from Juanita, 
When I was a pagan in the 1990s living in Southern California, I used to listen to Greg. His logic was compelling. He clearly planted a seed as I became a Christian 15 years later. Greg, we've got uh, 40 seconds before the break, but planting seeds, you you, you talk about gardening versus harvesting. We have to do a lot of seed planting, don't we? I mean, could you repeat the last question again? I get a little background noise here. That was a nice comment, by the way, from the Facebook. Yes. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, with 30 seconds before the break, just to say, you talk about gardening, harvesting, but we've got to do a lot of seed planting first. Yes, this is, this is absolutely correct. And more than ever before, and it's a concept that I develop in the book, um, the concept, the distinction between what I call gardening and harvesting, and, uh, and I show how the tactical game plan is absolutely perfectly suited for effective gardening in a way that keeps the Christian safe and not in a tough spot. All right, friends, we'll be right back with Greg Kokel, the new revised, expanded 10th anniversary edition of Tactics. It's a must-read book if you want to make a difference for Jesus in today's world. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. According to Sean McDowell, tactics will revolutionize your conversations with new Christians. I'm speaking with Greg Kokel. If somehow you're not familiar with his ministry and work over these many years, the last name is K-O-U-K-L. In the book Tactics, a best-selling book, and because of its popularity and effectiveness, and because of ongoing changes in our society, Greg has made the serious investment of time and energy to update, expand the material. He said about 40% of it is brand new. And, and Greg, it's, it's divided into two main sections. The first section is the game plan, and the second section is finding the flaws. So obviously, all we can do is touch the surface here, plant some seeds in our listeners and viewers, and get them to, to get the book if, if they haven't, or if they have the original, give that away and, and get the new edition. But I, I just want to focus on one more question in the, the game plan part and then go to finding the flaws. Yeah. When you say getting in the driver's seat, what do you mean by that? Because for most of us, that's like taking control and running things, whereas your whole approach is so different than that. How do we get in the driver's seat? Well, the approach is how we do it. The difference of my approach is how we do it. Uh, we do want to be in the driver's seat in the sense that we are guiding the conversation. Let me give you an example. It's perfect for us. Uh, you and I are both talk show hosts. Right now, you're interviewing me, okay? Uh, notice that I'm doing most of the talking. I'm doing the heavy lifting, right? You've got the easy part. You just ask the questions. But everybody knows that you are in control of this conversation because the conversation is moving in the direction that you want it to go, and you are directing it by the questions you are asking. Now, you might, you know, I might come up with something goofier, takes us another direction. You can carefully pull us back on track by adding another question that moves us in the direction you want to go rather than in the direction I'm going. So this is a perfect um, paradigm example of what we do in conversations with other people. You're not being unkind to me, Michael. You're not controlling me. You're not manipulating, but you are in the driver's seat in a very gracious and a nice fashion. 
it's characteristic of your style, actually, even with de- dealing with people that, that are different, uh, d- differ with you on important issues. And, um, and this is what I'm talking about, about staying in the driver's seat. Now, the way that you stay in the driver's seat is by doing just what you're doing, is by asking questions. And that is the key to the game plan. The key to the game plan, and there are three parts of the plan, but there are three different ways of using questions in uh, very intentional ways to draw the other person out, get them talking about their side, allowing you to get information and get a lay of the land, and then have a sense of where you can go productively with the conversation, but always using questions. Mm. Yeah, and, and how much does Jesus do that in the Gospels? It like does over take... 300 questions. 300 times he asked questions. I mean, there's a whole list of them. It's amazing yeah, it, how much he used questions. Start with God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve asking questions or asking Cain right. questions. And just it draws out what's in people's hearts and it really does allow you to direct things. So, friends, Greg is offering practical wisdom. And by the way, if you want an engaging read, I'm just looking at the chapter titles in part two. Suicide, Views That Self-Destruct, Another Sibling Rivalry and Infanticide, Taking the Roof Off, Steamroller, Road Scholar, Just the Facts, Ma'am. So it's, it's written in a friendly, compelling way. But let's, let's just at least touch on this so our folks know some of the tactics here in terms sure. of finding the flaws. What I often find is that folks have their talking points. And the moment I challenge the talking point, they don't really have anything behind that. Now, I might do it in a confrontational way that just pushes back and now they don't want to say anything. But how through using questions can we find the flaws and then expose the bankruptcy of the world's position right in front of their own eyes? Yeah, well, that, that, the difference here is if you see the flaw, and that's what these different tactics that you just cited their names of help you to do, suicide, taking the roof off, uh, just the fact that that will help you to see the flaw, but you always exploit the flaw with a question. I'll give you a quick example of suicide. So I'm talking to a young man, and he didn't like my moral views on homosexuality. It was a friendly conversation. He asked me what I thought. I gave him my view, and he said, you know, you Christians get so judgmental. So he just made a statement against my character. I'm judgmental, all right? And, and, and I asked him a question because I want a clarification. I knew where this was going. I was already set up in my mind where I'm going, but here's the question I ask. What's wrong with that? What I said, what's wrong with that, Gil? And he said, well, it's wrong to judge. Okay, now I got his statement, a moral statement that he's making. And, but then I asked him another question. Now, many of your listeners are already caught on that when he says it's wrong to judge, he's making a judgment against me. Yep. He's doing the very same thing he's telling me not to do. That's the suicide aspect of it. And so I asked him a question. I could have said, well, I made a statement. I could have said, you're judging me. That's contradictory. But I didn't do that. Instead, I used the tactical approach and used a question. I said to Gil, Gil, if it's wrong to judge, then why are you judging me right now? Now that puts the ball back in his court. I'm not making an accusation where it's now silent because we just banged heads with each other. I've received what he said and tossed the ball back to him with a pr- an appropriate question. And now he's, like you just pointed out, kind of dumbfounded and, and silent, doesn't know what to say, because he'd never heard anything like that before. 
And I go into a lot more detail in the book of how this works. But there's a great example about how you can just use a question to take a tough situation and make it so much easier on you and really put the other person more in the hot seat where he belongs with a statement like that. Right. So we know that we're on the side of truth and therefore we're happy to do investigation. We're happy to have open hearts and minds and we're trying to get others to do the same. And it's, you know, the classic response to someone saying there's no absolute truth. Oh, is that true? Yeah, that's uh, right. There you go. Suicide <laughs> once again. Exactly. Hey, tell you what, let me let me grab a, a very quick call. I'm looking at a, another comment uh, from Matthias. He said, I, I, I just bought the book yesterday, so, but we need a German translation. So I imagine this <laughs> this, this is out in multiple languages or, or will be. But a quick question from, from Canada that I think will be interesting. Jules, real quick, dive right in. What's your comment or question for Greg? I love this tactic about this book, but I find it goes back, way back, being rabbinical. It seems like being a Jewish rabbi and just talking, like, to answer someone's question, you volleyball the back as asking another question to see if the other rabbi or the other learner, the Talmudin, would understand the question. So it seems like it's a volley back. You always answer a question with a question. It's very rabbinical, it's tactics. That's maybe my question to admit to Greg. Thanks, Jules. Yeah, yeah any I, thoughts I on that? I agree with him. I, I think it is rabbinic in, in that sense. <laughs> However, it's not just volleyball. It's not yep. just boom, boom, back and forth. We are using our questions to get them to consider a truth, something that is true, but we're using a compelling method to do that, questions, which I call the Colombo tactic after Lieutenant Colombo. Got it. So right now we do have a definite issue with younger people, with not just millennials, but Generation Z, so-called, with uh-huh. people who are now not interested in God in higher numbers, not interested in religion in, in higher numbers. This does exist. We, we can't ignore the problem for whatever the reason. Explain in particular, if you're going to deal, say, with a 20-year-old today who's fed by social media and, and has a certain outlook, why is this especially important with this younger generation? Well, partly because of what you said, they are apathetic about religion and those kinds of things. But a high number of these people who aren't interested in religion still consider themselves to be spiritual. And they are. In fact, somebody said, I'm spiritual but not religious. And I said, of course you're spiritual. God made you that way so that you Mm. can know know him. And what we do in a circumstance like this, instead of pressing our point of view initially— we can use questions to begin examining their point of view and hopefully plant a seed of doubt in their own mind about the things that they are very confident of regarding their own worldview that they've adopted. Atheists do this with Christians all the time. They challenge Christianity, their own, our view, so that now we'll doubt our view and be open to the atheist view. Well, it happens in reverse as well. Instead of promoting our view first, with an apathetic person like millennials, rather start asking questions that are penetrating questions about their own view and help them to uh, begin to doubt their view to be open to ours. Yeah, and, and just as I reflect on the planting of seeds issue, it it is so much more effective than we realize and so necessary in the process of getting someone to make a, a radical life change. So, friends, if you don't have the book Tactics, get hold of it. Greg Kokel, 
now the 10th anniversary edition. And just so someone else said, hey, I read the first edition six months ago and bought the new one, uh, now signed through your ministry. So obviously that got their interest. And Greg, if folks just want to connect with your ministry more broadly, what's the best place to go? Well, simply to go to str.org. Our organization is called Stand to Reason, and the acronym is STR. So add a .org to it, and you'll find us. Great. So friends, lots of great resources there. Connect with Greg. Take advantage of what's there online. And then if you don't have it yet, get the book Tactics. Look, the harvest is massively ripe in America. Greg, so glad that you put in the extra work to get the new edition out. May God use it to touch many lives. Thank you, Michael. It's good to see you in November, by the way, and hope to see you again soon. Yes, I hope so. All right. God bless. Friends, we are out of time, but uh, tomorrow, 30 Jewish Thursday. So your Jewish-related calls, questions, send them our way. Friday, you've got questions, we've got answers. Be looking for my latest articles, videos, all posted at askdrbrown.org. A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org.